0: So good morning and um, i hope everybody is well for those of you who are homeschooling well done for getting to nearly the very last day and no doubt you're on a bit of a countdown for the next few hours until you can send send them back to be uh taught by the teachers at last um so well done for getting here and well done for making this session if that is actually what you're doing and um, so today we have got a panel of experts to speak and um, about a key issue for partnerships. So partnerships are often credited with the idea that they engender and promote a collegiate working environment and a really collaborative culture, because everyone's really pulling together and moving in the same direction. But the criticism of that is also that they can be really slow to implement change, that they don't move very quickly. And part of that is because by implementing change, you often need a critical mass of partners to approve that change sometimes those changes won't be directly or immediately beneficial to the partners, or at least they might not see that they are. And as a result, difficult decisions and difficult proposals can often be watered down and stagnated and either take a really long time to get through or not get through at all. Um, And so in this uh, session today, what we're going to look at are some of the key um, bits of advice that the panel will share with you um, as to how you implement change Um, particularly if those are significant partnership or constitutional changes, those sorts of changes will often affect an LLP agreement, the structure of a partnership, the structure of an equity and remuneration issues, obviously all really critical and key to the partners who are going to be expected to vote on those changes. Um, The panel we have with you today are well-placed to discuss these issues. So first up, we've got Peter Duff. He is the chairman of Shoesmiths. Um, He's a Covering employment lawyer or former employment lawyer, he certainly something is- like that unemployment lawyer but uh, has changed his focus a little bit to um, really focus on the firm and his role is to lead the firm and the partnership um, and to deliver the strategic vision of the firm and he's really keen in that to to make sure that the firm is reflecting and mirroring qualities that the clients want um, from their service provider and he looks at issues of structures and governance and has recently brought the firm through some changes so he's very well placed to share with us his experiences this morning. Um, Second, we've got Rob Millard, who will be familiar to many of you. Um, He is founder and director of Cambridge Strategy Group. a management consultancy which specialises in advising professional services firms, in particular law firms, on strategic and business model issues. He's also got a particular issue in law firm mergers. We'll touch on that a little bit as we go through. And last but not least, I've got my colleague Zulon Begum, who's a partner with um, me at Murray. And she specializes in non-contentious partnership issues. So she looks at mergers, acquisitions, and governance documents, constitutional changes, and issues around both the technical side of that. So the drafting and the structuring side, but also actually implementing these things and getting them approved by wider partnerships. So they're well-placed to lead us through this discussion. Um, I should also say, before we kick off, um, two housekeeping points. We are recording this session. So that means it will be available later for anyone who wants to listen to it back on a podcast. So if you do uh, not want to be on that recording, then obviously just keep yourself on mute and, and don't speak. Um, but also we have um, well, very welcoming of uh, questions. If you have a question for the panel, if you pop it in the chat box at the bottom, I will seek to get to that either as we go or we'll have a little bit of time at the end to pick up some questions. Um, so do send us your questions or comments and obviously we're always very welcome uh, to hear from you with your own experiences and thoughts as well as we work through the session. So I suppose we should probably start with the big question as to why, why are we all here, why is change important, what motivates a professional services partnership to actually try and do this quite difficult and challenging process of changing something fundamental whether that be on a governance side or on a remuneration side. So, um, Peter, I'm going to start with you and ask, what do you think, and in your experience, is the motivation to start a process of change in a law firm?
1: Uh, well, looking back at uh, my experience, I'd love to say um, it's because you've got a burning platform uh, because the world is about to fall apart because, I don't know, you've not got enough capital, uh, you can't make decisions or something like that. Because I think if you've got a burning platform, uh, you will get change a lot easier. Um in my case, I had absolutely none of that. Um, I pushed for change for the LLP probably because like a lot of professional services firms, um, the LLP was okay. People trusted it. Um, no one really knew where it came from. It came from the mists of time. It was probably a an old partnership deed that truth history sits back in northampton i don't know 50 years ago 10 15 people sitting around a table in northampton um, drafted a deed that then got tweaked changed an llp and all equity llp but didn't fundamentally get looked at and we'd really outgrown it um, so whilst there was nothing horribly broken it was not efficient to me it wasn't particularly fair uh, we had developed a process that really if you broke down our three tiers of equity that we had at the time in old language they were full equity fixed share equity and salary partners so even though we become an all equity partnership we hadn't really broken down the barriers we hadn't really become a full equity because we tried to sort of fudge everything to to make people feel comfortable with change we tried not to do too much change um, that old falling for that old one Um, and consequently I think we had a system which, say, wasn't horribly broken, but didn't feel particularly fair across the board for varying reasons, wasn't particularly efficient and needed, if we had the chance, and I created the chance, um, needed modernisation, in short
0: so so you've sort of set out your experiences do you think you need to have a problem then presumably not you know there wasn't that burning platform as you say but do you think it's easier if you 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 have a specific problem that comes up that you need to address is that do you think that's the more common reason for change
1: i think you need to you must have a reason uh trying to get a load of busy lawyers who want to get themselves involved but some of them get themselves horribly involved in the detail if you give them a document to review um, you, you absolutely need to have a reason um, and a reason that they can understand and believe in. Whether that is positive or negative to them almost doesn't matter. Clearly, it's better if it's positive. But I, in, in Shusen's case, I set out reasons for each of the three levels of equity that they would gain out of change. Um, but they would have to compromise and give something in order to have that gain. So it wasn't the same for each level. Um, and the reasons that I think people voted for it in the end were, were would be a whole myriad. But I gave an overall structure of, of uh of the vision of how I wanted the partnership to be and the fairness um and how people would slot into that. Um but having said that, and probably one we'll go on to later, I didn't, I deliberately didn't go the whole hog sort of, I didn't push it to a stage where Perhaps we could go further and maybe Smith will continue and I'm sure it will continue to evolve over the future years. But I wasn't going to ask turkeys to vote for Christmas um, because in the end, you are going to have to get partners to yeah. vote for this change.
0: And Rob, do you think, you know, Peter mentions fairness and equity. Do you think a lot of the time change is either focused only on compensation or focused too much or kind of viewed through that lens?
2: Ah, that's a great question, Sarah. And and the answer is yes, but not always. Uh, this burning platform that that Peter alluded to, I mean, that, that came straight out of change management theory. And, the, and the, the conventional thinking is that you need one. And if you haven't got one that you can point to, that you need to create one. And I, I think that's very dangerous, especially in a partnership, because it, it's, it's all very well if leaders are pointing to a, bla- a burning platform that exists. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if they are perceived to have created that burning platform, uh, that that can be quite dangerous. Uh, so saying we, uh, and changing the way that uh, people behave, the assumption that you can change the way people will behave just by paying them differently is also flawed. It's a very blunt approach, uh, and changing compensation systems uh, also uh, creates unanticipated consequences almost always elsewhere in the firm. Um, that said, it, it, it's quite common for firms to look at compensation systems and and, and see whether they are every now and again and see whether they are still for purpose and um, when firms do that they need, they need to be looking at, at the broad range of changes that are required and, and that that means looking at business model there's a, a debate going on at the moment as to whether business model and strategy are really two different things I, I guess that's semantics from in, in practice it's a, by business model I mean that 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 interconnected um, combination of the client value proposition the processes and resources that a firm has to deliver that client value proposition and, and the formula that the firm has developed to to, to deliver um, uh, performance and profitability. And one can look at, at compensation then in that context. Um, it, it's a very important part of that mix, um, but just to say, well, let's, we need to change the way people behave, let's change the way we pay them, uh, that very seldom works.
0: Yeah, and um, Zulon, do you find in practice that what people end up doing sort of chipping away at little points because actually the idea of wholesale change is quite intimidating and you know potentially uh, looks like too big a project.
3: Yeah I I think the burning platform um, is probably the the one that precipitates the the most change in firms but um, other firms who are not facing those kind of particular burning platform issues um, will have different challenges at different times. Um, and there's no kind of trend in, I, I can't really see a particular trend in whether they're chipping away or you know making a, a kind of a fundamental change to their whole strategy rem, remuneration and, and constitution. I think a lot really depends on firstly the appetite and bandwidth um, amongst the management team to tackle the big and sometimes really tricky issues such as changing compensation structure or Introducing or tightening provisions in their partnership agreement to protect the firm, um, and secondly, whether management have confidence in their own leadership and ability to persuade the partners to approve the major changes, and whether they really have their pulse, you know, the finger on their on the pulse of their partners to understand what their partners are likely to agree to and not not agree to. Um, so, so, whether there, where there is a kind of a lack of appetite or confidence among the leadership, it might only be possible to chip away at the smaller changes, um, which might be discreet and urgent. For example, if you need to raise more capital in the firm, but you don't have the ability to do that under the partnership agreement, you might need to make a change there. I think my experience overall is that firms are more likely to t- undertake um, a fundamental overhaul of strategy where there isn't a burning platform. Um, when there has been a significant event, for example, a merger or a transition from a found, uh, founder generation to the next generation. Um, and also where, where you know, in, like in Peter's situation where the firm has been doing well in, in, a, in a good economic period and management feel that they have the wind behind them and the confidence of their, of their partners to, to enable them to make those changes. And I expect that when coming out of the pandemic and and you know when, when the economy economy is recovering, a lot of firms will probably look at um, some of those issues that they've um, have been really accentuated as a result of their pandemic um, in, in their partnership, whether that's in their constitution or the, or the way that they compensate their partners, and they may look to make those changes coming out of the pandemic
0: as a result of that. Thanks, and I suppose you you mentioned sort of. Um, Uh, various different things that might happen if you don't change. Um, Rob, what do you think are the key benefits of changing over staying with the status quo? Which I suppose is another way of saying, what's the danger of not changing?
2: Well, well, change is all around us. It's ubiquitous. It's always been so. Uh, I don't think we've ever lived in a a situation where uh, tomorrow is the same as yesterday and we can rely on things staying the same. So firms are constantly having to to fine-tune as they go along, and they need to have the systems and, and processes in place to be able to deal with that. I think what we're talking about today is, is something slightly different, which is when the identi- something has been identified that requires a major change. Um, and, and that becomes a little bit more challenging because there are always uh, winners and losers, right? So, and... Uh, and you know, Machiavelli wrote about this in the early 1500s when he said that when it, it, it's so difficult to achieve change because the people who are losing are going to fight like anything and the people that will benefit sometimes don't see the benefits so they're at best ambivalent. So, I mean, this is not, not new knowledge. It's always been there. And it's, yeah. uh, uh, but, but as our firms have grown bigger and more complex, uh, the, the, the need to have systems in place to be able to deal with this has become more important, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think in partnerships in particular, inherently, you know, you have so many competing interests, you know, between the people that have just entered the partnership and the people that are potentially thinking about leaving the partnership. um, And also people who see them staying there for sort of 20 years and other people who think maybe they'll leave after three and all those things compete, I think. Um, We've actually um, had a, a question about... What we think um before change um so um, what's the thinking before you change for um things like clients and also the associate and the wider for considerations you need to think about in terms of how that will be perceived by the wider stakeholders and um, peter do you want to comment on that
1: sure um we uh, we did uh let some clients know at a certain point that we were looking at it but uh, to be honest um most of it is is very internally focused, which itself actually is one of the dangers um, to digress slightly from 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 the question. One of the concerns I had in going through this process, because let's be honest, it's not a short process, not to the scale that we changed. It took uh, 18 months, two years to get to um, to, to actually implementing the change. And, and we will we're continuing to work through it. We have we only changed the LLP last May. Um, One of the things I I was concerned about was the fact that you were going to get, in our case, over 200 partners looking internally not focusing on the clients which ultimately is what drives the business Mm -hmm. and I was really keen on it not being driven in a way that was a distraction to the business that actually was an enhancement to the business. Um, Shoesmith's vision is all about client experience so it would have been absolutely crazy for me to propose something internally which was destroying our external vision so you had to create the two so we were very transparent and open about it. And we let clients know. We certainly didn't keep it a secret looking at it. But we also wanted to reassure them that the reason for doing it was to, to align it with our client experience and align it with our culture. It was to keep the firm very transparent. It was to ensure that it was very fair and proportionate in the way that we were doing things. So that it was really enhancing the shoesmiths they knew. Um, but, but I was absolutely adamant that we did it at a pace that did not take people away from the day job.
0: And and a sort of related question, which I think we were going to come to, but I'll just get to it now. What about um, other staff members? So, you know, I know from having been in firms that have changed um, and also just from my experience Mm. at work, but, you know, people get really unsettled when they sense change or they sense that there's something going on. And, you know, there's a lot of gossip. No one really knows exactly what's going on. How do you deal with that? And at what point did you think it was appropriate to um, include uh, the other staff in the communications?
1: Sure. It um, is a really good question because you're right. Um, if you don't, if you don't communicate and people get wind of it, they can be even more suspicious and fill the void with negativity. Um, we, I started really with a with a cascade. My initial discussions were with what we call our partnership council uh, and the board. It then spread out to the full equity partners at the time, the, what we called A partners, because ultimately, because of the voting system, unless they were with it, I would never have got it. Um, uh, actually passed and then we we cascaded wider and and at that later point we did let the f- whole firm know that we were looking at the structure and why because otherwise um, put bluntly uh, you, you would ask expect a, a, many of the employees to just go so they're dividing up how to to split the profits is it great so what's yeah. in it for us um, so we need to be very clear that actually it was done for all the reasons I've previously explained it, it's There was an element of remuneration in it, um, but it wasn't just about that. It was about how we governed ourselves, um, um, how partners would have influence so they could influence the direction of the Mm -hmm. firm. Um, So we wanted to make sure, uh, and we've never, this has never been one that's sort of a cabal-like structure, but we wanted to make it very clear that this was actually widening the influence, widening the opportunities, and making, for particularly for the lawyers, making partnership hopefully more attractive because I certainly got a sense that and it will it will still be the case that some people do not wish to become a partner in a law firm nowadays and and that'll be their personal choice but I wanted to make it very clear as to what it was that was being being a partner and, and what the advantages of that were what the influence you could have but also the responsibilities that came with it so there was a lot of clarity we were trying to create um from from what a lot of partnerships create. Um, uh, deliberately create ambiguity and want to keep it a, a bit of a hidden secret we yep. we went the other direction.
0: Yeah and I think going forward for any firms contemplating change over the next year to 18 months that communication piece is probably going to be even more vital because um, where people feel less secure in their roles and you know where the economy is in a bit more flux, I think people automatically jump to the worst conclusion. so I think staff members will automatically worry that there's going to be redundancies or closures of departments or things like that. so I think yeah, it's vital and you and, do
1: have to be sorry, so you do have to be very clear then on the on your rationale. so we uh, in the end, I press the button during covid at the start of covid and we still went for the for the change um, which was um, something of a, of a of a a potentially a risky move at, at that time when people were uncertain but we had to be very clear as to to why and and because we'd been discussing it for 18 months people accepted that it was not a cash call for example because then in those days if you cash it was suddenly oh my goodness the firm must be in trouble the, the yeah. partners are this must be recapitalization well it, either that or we had incredible foresight and we have been discussing the, the world for 18 months before we knew it was going to happen so <laughs> we were able because we'd had that communication people knew it wasn't something that was new and suddenly happening
0: yeah I mean you could have tipped us all off about how this was going to pan out.
1: <laughs> you? I'd but love to yes
0: against you. Um, and and Rob just before we sort of move on to the practical things um, can you just uh, say you know in terms of um the risks of things like mergers, that's a form of change, and um, the particular risks there around confidentiality. I mean, I know of some um, kind of partners who've led mergers, who've literally been one of sort of three people in a massive business who've known about it. Um, and in your experience, why is that so necessary?
2: Well, uh, there's always a tension, isn't there, when you have something like a merger, because there are different firms involved, there is an element of confidentiality, the the whole process can get scuppered if uh, the information gets out into the media, and, and yet the media are, are very good at uncovering information about these things. So sometimes the only way to, to, to keep uh, the commercial confidentiality that's necessary to protect the, the, the not even the deal yet, the negotiations towards the deal, is to keep it within a small circle. So I, I think the the key question is uh, is is to be thoughtful about how transparent and how inclusive one is being and why uh and as soon as possible widen the net and even if you do keep it in a small circle the question is um uh, who's in that circle i mean peter's just mentioned that cascade from the partnership council to the equity partners and then broader but even outside of that circle there may be some very influential people that that aren't in the leadership but uh if 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 they were to disagree with the deal it would uh it would scupper it Uh, and and it may not even be uh Just senior partners. Who it could it it could be it could be more junior people too. I mean, imagine that uh, brilliant but 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 militant associate that's got enormous um, uh, influence amongst the junior ranks of the firm. It may be worthwhile to bring those people on board very early. Swear them to secrecy, uh, but but bring them on board as a sounding board, so that when one does slowly broaden the 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 circle it's in a thoughtful way and, uh, and, and you've got the people that, that could otherwise scupper the deal supporting you rather than questioning you simply because they still have questions. Those questions haven't yeah. been answered yet.
0: That's a really interesting point, because I think people obviously have to at some stage bring in um, the wider workforce if they, um, you know, if it's going to affect them from an employment law perspective, if nothing else. But Mm. I think it's quite uncommon to bring in um, non-partners at an earlier stage. Um, But yeah, definitely, as you say, you can see the benefit in that. Um, So moving on then to the practicalities of this in terms of, you know, how do you actually get change to happen? How do you, you know, what techniques do you use to persuade people to your um new vision and peter if you could sum this up and I know it's gonna be a tricky question what was the biggest challenge you faced in getting people on board with
1: uh i think right at the start getting that buy-in because i think if you lose that that buy-in you've got an uphill battle um so and i'm just there's perhaps i can pick up the question that's coming on the on the chat sure. about awareness that, that there must have been something happening a stagnation that if there wasn't a burning platform what it was if uh, An apologies because there's a lot of people on this this uh, core with a lot of partnership knowledge. But if if you go back to the fundamental, what I call the holy trinity uh, of a partnership, and and that to me is is remuneration, reward, um, capital, investment, and influence. Typically, voting when a partner has a voice, and that that triangle um, was not proportionate in the structure that Shoesmith had slowly evolved over time. They'd evolved it for all the right reasons. They'd introduce a fixed share partner to make it easier to get to an equity. But actually what had happened is is that these, they become plateaus rather than a a proportionate line. So um, what I could offer to each of those areas, and we've effectively gone to two levels to full equity and fixed share, but the fixed share now is 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 a line that people can move up and down on and have more control over. Um, But that's allowed us to make the capital um, proportionate, um, because at that point, the A A partners had a disproportionate amount of capitalization. So they were overexposed. Um, But in return, the the, what were the C partners? So the previous salaried partners were probably for, for many people under rewarded. We didn't we don't have a bonus structure. We still don't have a bonus structure per se because it's not um, it's not partly within our, our culture. We want to create that that team ethos. But without that bonus structure, there were people effectively caught that weren't getting properly remunerated and our structures didn't have that flexibility. We didn't we couldn't reward people enough without them becoming a full equity, but mm-hmm they couldn't become a full equity because they didn't have the business case. So, <clears throat> so we, we collapsed that middle band and allowed people therefore to come all the way through very close to, um to a full equity position. So, uh, and that meant we could then get the proportionality between reward and capitalization better. So the A partners gained because they, they, we haven't taken capital away at this point, but longer term, we, we hopefully will give them capital back. But the recapitalization a gave the firm more capital, but actually made it proportionate. Um, but in return, they had to let go of some of the profit, um, some of their own profits, and and provide more uh, to what to the and uh, now the the fixed share equity. And then, if you take the influence bit, the voting perhaps talk about that separate because I think that became really difficult uh, and in the end we've we've just created a small number of things that we think are the most important um, election of of um, of the the chair the ceo and um, partnership council and the like um, and they are now one partner one vote um, and then we do have a certain things that are reserved for full equity but we actually as part of this could change our transparency on the governance so that what was a board decision? What's the CEO discretion? We we had some really odd things that the partners were still required to vote on every year. What interest we paid on capital was a full partner vote, which was crazy because we always voted exactly what the bank were charging our interest rate. So, it, you know, suddenly that was well, why can't the board just make that? So yeah. we were able to to create a, a very clear um uh, and uh, zulon who who helped us through this whole process create a very clear um table at the as an appendix and you just turn to that table and you know exactly whose decision um, and whose whose responsibility is is what which that cl- we didn't have that clarity in our old deed we didn't even have board, the board in our old deed for goodness sake so
0: yeah. I have to say, I do, lo- I do. love a nice clear table. No bias, obviously, because I work. <laughs> I do love a nice clear table at the end of an LFP agreement. But that's what did. You, you, just, you, fl- you
1: flick through it, and you go, "Okay, yeah. it's it's a vote about that. Who has it? Um, and is a, there's a lot of clarity? Um, and whilst we've been a very transparent partner as long as I've been here, um, it, it became even clearer, and people had more confidence in it because it's there in black and white.
0: Yeah, um, and Zule, I suppose that takes me to to a point I want to ask you about, which is. Um, you know the first step before you even get to the practicalities of persuading people you need to work out who you need to persuade
3: yeah and and you actually have to take quite a forensic approach to this um and Peter and I talked about this before we even kind of started um drafting the agreement I, I think from memory um so you really need to work out firstly um under your current agreement what approval threshold is required um in order to um uh, you know, approve the decision to amend the agreement as you're, as you're you know, planning to amend um, and then working out how many partners would need to actually vote in favour in, in pure number terms in order for that change to be adopted. Um, there may be in your current agreement also weighted voting, um, so it may be that voting is weighted in favour of senior equity partners In those kind of cases, you should also kind of almost have a table as to how many equity partner votes do you need, how many junior partner partner votes do you need. Um, And then if you have the finger on on the pulse of your partnership, as I mentioned before, you might be able to guesstimate which partners are likely to dissent and come to some kind of preliminary calculation as to whether the changes that you're proposing are actually likely to be um, approved by the partners. Um, and if if you think that is a possibility, even if you're kind of at the borderline, um, I, I think after having done the crude maths, it's also important to cons- consider on a practical level who the influencers are in within the partnership, and who who the other key partners are who can't really um, afford to antagonise or lose. And um, so they they're usually the kind of the big um, big rainmakers or influencers. Um, and it's usually, you know, taking quite a Machiavellian approach, like Rob mentioned before. Oh. It's it's kind of advisable to kind of start at those big players within the partnership and get them on board first, and get their confidence, and then move on to the next tier of partnership and, and start that kind of consultation and persuasion process in order to get everybody around the table and um, pulling together in one direction.
0: Thanks, Zulan. And I should just say on a technical point that, uh, and I mean actual technical, um, I'm getting a message about my internet connection. I think everyone's just joined the homeschooling in my uh, block of flats. So apologies if there's any problems. Um, Zulan will kind of fill in for me. Fingers crossed that's not. Uh, so, um, Rob, do you think you will need but, you know, in trying to get everyone on board, um, you're clearly not everyone to agree with everything you want.
2: I'm sorry, you'll have to answer, the, ask the question again, Sarah, you did disappear in the middle of it.
0: Sure. Did I, apologies. Um, will you need to compromise? Um, is that an inevitability?
2: Yes, of course, there's compromise necessary. Peter mentioned this earlier as well. It's very important, though, to know what the limits are within which you can compromise. I mean, it's not uncommon to find a firm that's wrestling with problem X, and then they uh, compromise to such a degree that the solution that eventually gets table doesn't solve problem X. Uh, That doesn't do any good at all. So uh, immense clarity about what it is that you're trying to achieve, I, I think, is the first step. The second step is... Having those compromises to, to the degree that they are necessary, those compromising discussions with the power players in the firm, and then engaging the wider uh, the wider group from a stronger base. Does that make sense? Thanks. And yes, it does.
1: I, I totally endorse that. You you're you absolutely. If I when Zula and I sat down and and you would list your ideal, um, uh, but but you actually we started with must haves. Yeah. um and uh we actually drew a line that that i said if i don't think i'm going to get this i will pull the plug right because we hmm. will not we will not gain enough for the dis- dislocation that will potentially cause if we're not going to get this amount um, so uh, uh, we actually went well beyond that, and, and to jump right to the end point, uh, I mean, we got a ninety-seven. Zulon might remember the figures, ninety-seven percent vote in favour or something. So we absolutely took the partnership, not far off one hundred percent with us. Um, so you could now argue that did we push it far enough? Because you didn't get you didn't get a, a few people, but we actually decided that we got what we wanted and more, and that we will now let people. Get confidence in this system. Go through the new processes for for two three years, and actually that will probably allow some of the extras we would have wanted to start to come back into the equation because people will trust it. You will get the old A partners being prepared to let go a little bit more because they see they see how the system works and that they're not suddenly now going to be held to ransom. Um, and you will get the that what were the C partners now the fixed. Actually trusting it because they're getting a better reward. They feel they're having a voice, and that actually they will they will take on the <coughs> responsibilities better, and they will act more like equity partners. So we're, we're seeing good stuff already, and we're, we're less than a year in. But but you almost do have to start with an acceptance. You will have to compromise. And I suppose,
0: irrespective, um, I suppose, put this to you, Rob. Irrespective of. What you can and can't do. There's a huge benefit in actually having people on board, even if you don't need them on board. Um, you know, you might not need the votes, so etc. But
2: yes, of course. I mean, it speaks to engagement. It speaks to retention. It speaks to all sorts of good things. It speaks performance. Uh, but there's another point uh, to be made under compromise, and that is that uh, if if you are engaging uh, a, a broader uh, talent pool in in the in the uh, for, for, uh, in the decision. It's not it's not uncommon for an alternative idea to come out that will meet the same needs uh, that's different to the one that uh, was originally contemplated. So one has to be open to that as well. Uh, Quite common. Yeah. Um,
0: And and yes, that's the benefit of consultation, which. uh, I think employment lawyers like to bang on about consultation for a lot. There is actual benefit to it. It's not just because we're ticking boxes sometimes.
1: Um and it and it has to be genuine as well. Hmm. So um we went out and we had workshops and we had consultations and we did it in that that phased way that cascade way that I, I talked about earlier um, but we made sure that people did have the opportunity to, to have that and they did come up with a few that you know there were some areas that that, that did get changed some of them relatively late on because people came with extra extra ideas um, yeah. but the other practical tip I would give is um, particularly bearing in mind that that uh, we're talking a bunch of lawyers here, so I'll, I'll try not to be too derogatory because I'm speaking to probably a lot of people listening who are lawyers, is don't give them all the detail. Um, we started with, this is what we're trying to achieve and the the basics and what, what it is as a structure we would like to create. We didn't say, and here's a draft LLP change. Um, that came gosh almost only two months to the end almost to the perhaps a little bit earlier but to the stage where we were looking at that actually pressing ahead with a vote and then we could say right and we've now codified it here it is it's a track change version so you can see what we've done very transparent if you want to go through the detail there it is and we got two or three drafting comments from 200 plus lawyers because we'd the communications are all in about we're agreeing what we're trying to achieve then we'll codify it. And and I think if we'd gone with a here's a load of detail, we would have ended up arguing about the detail rather than arguing about the principles. And,
2: and yeah. if I can just leap in here, that, that, that makes sense, not only in Peter's firm, it's not a, a cultural aspect that's unique to Shoesmiths, but it's a com- across the board. Uh, strategy itself has been through a journey over the past few decades, from the 60s and 70s, when it was a secret thing that a small committee put together, and then we'll tell everybody what they need to do to implement, to the 80s and 90s, where it was, well, we better consult, so we, let's send out a survey or two and see what people think about particular issues, but we'll still develop the strategy centrally, to the current thinking, which is it needs to be as transparent and inclusive as makes commercial sense. And there are tools available now to be able to do that. So there's really no excuse not to adopt that approach.
1: And But you have to be confident, and this probably won't play to all, but you you have to be comfortable that your partners are going to act like partners and they are going to have that discussion within themselves mm. and that you're not going to have your dirty washing um, out there in public. Uh, and we were very fortunate we, we didn't have uh, for any, anyone um, as far as aware. Um, I have to say, as a question that came in earlier, you know, what sort of PR did you put out afterwards? We didn't do any external PR um, because actually we didn't think people would be particularly interested. We had a reactive press statement ready in case people were interested. We told certain stakeholders what we'd done, but otherwise we didn't because we felt, well, we've sorted out our internal structure. If you've noticed any difference, it should be a positive one um so uh, you know you you do have to be slightly careful um you know there are certain aspects you know i'll be very open on this call but there are because certain aspects that i'm you know are, are shoesmiths and, and will stay private to shoesmiths. so you have to trust your partnership um mm. but it's always a you know you, you have to go there because otherwise you're not going to have the conversation if you don't trust them and you don't give them the information don't expect them to um to buy in
0: And Zulon, in terms of partners um, as individuals owing duties themselves to sort of move away from the practical and go on to the more technical, to what extent do you think fiduciary duties are relevant and to what extent do you think partners abide those?
3: Yeah, so I think that the core relevant duty here is, is the fiduciary obligation of LLP members and partners in the partnership to to act in good faith and in best interest of their firm. And this duty extends to them acting over and above their own interests, if it's actually in the, in the firm's interest to take a certain decision. Um, so there's that inherent, inherent dilemma for partners when, when any proposed changes that might have an adverse effect on them personally. It's as Peter mentioned, it's like Turkish voting for Christmas. Um, so one of the classic examples is is where the firm proposes to extend. Its period of the period of its restrictive covenants, um, which will impact any partner who might be contemplating resignation um, in the near future. In that situation, it's clearly in the firm's best interest to bolster its protection from partners who leave and attempt to take clients or or team members with them. So it can be really helpful to remind partners of, of their of the paramountcy of their duty to the to the partnership in these kind of situations because I think partners can sometimes forget that you know they are they have all of these fiduciary obligations that go over and above their own
0: personal interests. Yeah I think that's something that we certainly see when like ind- change that they are worried about the conflict um
1: It's interesting, though, because, of course, not many partners are going to put their hand up and admit to that um, conflict. Um, But but, but Zulon's right, and, and we introduce various things that, Whilst they weren't at the core of that holy trinity, you know, there were some things we we changed about exiting partners. Um, our our previous deed didn't really contemplate team moves, for example, so we were able to introduce that. There may well have been partners uh, looking at all of that information, going, "Oh crikey, that's going to scupper me." Um, hopefully not. We haven't had anyone uh, uh, leave like that since. But but ultimately, I uh, you have to you have to be doing it for the reasons, the right reasons for the firm, and ultimately, you know, they the, the partners. Believe that this would become a more efficient uh, and fairer, and therefore actually more profitable. That, that what, what ultimately is in it for all of the partners here is if we have a better firm, which is um, happier, more engaged, and the partners are are flying. Then every partner is going to gain because ultimately the profits are going to increase. So you have to get that level of, of of belief and engagement that we're on the journey together uh, on this, and that that's what really came through with. With our partnership, fortunately, they they felt they felt they were on the journey together, and they felt um, more cohesive as a result of the changes. Um, and we certainly didn't get to the point where it became of them and us.
3: Yeah, I think I think the onus is on on the firm and management to actually stress why it's in in the best interest of the firm. It, with the restrictive covenants issues, it's much more simpler to demonstrate that. With issues like changes in compensation structure, it's a bit more complex because those you know those those changes can be sometimes um, speculative and um, may not pan out. So it takes a bit of persuading um, partners that it is in the best interest of the firm and they they should vote in favour of it.
0: And Rob, how do you, well, would you like to comment on how this may differ in a founder-led business? Which are obviously, sometimes businesses which really need to change by some pressing reason of the founder potentially planning their exit.
2: Mm. Uh, fa- transitioning from founder-led governance systems to what we call perpetual partnerships, I think, is probably the most difficult thing that a founder-led firm, uh, it's the most difficult challenge facing a founder-led firm. Um, And and timing is everything. If you you imagine a a firm where the founders are still producing a a great deal and contributing and they're powerful within the firm, and they've developed a next generation, which is also uh, adding value in the same way, a a very constructive conversation can be had. Uh, What often happens in in, in founder-led firms, though, is that they they surround themselves with partners that are more service partners that don't threaten them. And then those people need to be brought up to speed before you can have that kind of a conversation. But where the founding partners have frankly taken their foot off the pedal a bit and and, and, and their, their power in the firm is receding and the new generation is perceiving themselves to be the drivers of the firm's performance. That's very dangerous for the partners, for the founding partners, uh, because they they have far less to offer anymore. Uh, their, their power base is gone. And, and and so it's interesting right now in this juncture in history, it, it, uh, the 1990s saw a lot of new firms being established in Latin America, in Eastern Europe, other emerging markets just because of globalization, Eastern Europe because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the entry of those, those, those markets into, into the rule of law paradigm. Uh, And and, and those partners now are retiring or thinking about retiring. So if we're having a discussion about exiting the firm and and, and keeping keeping the firm going, because that's another question, isn't it, is do we want to leave a legacy or do we want to extract as much value as we can and then wind the firm down or reverse it in, in a merger? Uh, but if the idea is to keep it a legacy, uh, is to keep the firm going and, and, and to leave a legacy, then it's important for that conversation to happen quite early on, several years before the the intended exits. Yeah. Uh,
0: and um, if we're talking about changes, um is- in respect to the, the governance documents themselves. So some changes will be almost bigger than that. So, you know, people will be less focused on what the written documents say, but sometimes we are talking about tweaking an LLP agreement or overhaul of an LLP agreement. Um, how mm-hmm. best, and how best, and you touched on this a little bit, Peter, but just kind of more generally, how best do you present those changes to the partners? So you said you didn't um, get into the minute detail, didn't send them lots of drafts, but it, how did you therefore go about presenting it and persuading people?
1: Uh, so we created a couple of documents that were uh, uh, effectively vision, the vision uh, of what the partnership would look like and we also said these are the areas we wish to touch um, and actually with the end it broke it, it broke it down into and again to a lovely table uh, partners do like it of, of here's the here's the critical here's the three uh, that affect your, your you know your capitalization your remuneration and your your influence um, and here's the other things that we are changing because we think it's for the good of the firm and then we had a sort of table at the end of oh and here's some consequential changes you know things that we would like to just um, uh, improve make better tidy up uh, codify um, uh, and that that was effectively the the running list but but we started by just focusing on that 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 top area and we created a document that said here here we have the the main areas we wish to to be dealing with. And these are our proposals, here's some alternatives. So we actually put out, you know, we could go to this positioning, we could go to this positioning, so we could have a discussion. We had a recommended and a preferred route, but we put other things, we sort of showed our thinking. We didn't just assume that we got it all right. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can, uh, we could then effectively start that conversation. Then we had a series effectively of workshops or, uh, partner meetings, um, because in those days you could physically meet, um, so we had that advantage, and that was, it to, to be honest, that was a huge advantage. I mean, the later stage, are ultimately our full partner meeting where we took a vote was a was a virtual one, and that certainly made it made it harder. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the, the that earlier stage, we could have physical meetings, and people could literally be in the room and and ask questions, um, and that allowed us to to take it further. Um, I also made a policy decision which. Um, uh, as all as all lawyers on the receiving end you you cringe at and I made Zulon put Zulon in this position. I said even though it would be easy to start with a blank piece of paper or your precedent, um, there is trust in the present document and I want to people to feel that we're amending our present culture llp we're playing with what we know rather than starting with something afresh and that was just a mental buy-in for people so even though the red line in the end turned out to be uh, quite quite drastic just because of the reorganization more than more than changes um, unfortunately i asked zulan as a lawyer to to amend a document uh, and, and have all of that horror of doing that rather than start with with a fresh but we just made that decision as as one to help with the buy-in really more than anything
0: and, and moving on then to the documents, uh, so quite a good segue. Um, Zulon, what do you see are the common problems in governance documents and LLP agreements to actually th- that hamper the growth and hamper firms being able to change?
3: I think I think the, the kind of headline issues that uh, and gaps in in partnership agreements that I tend to see usually relate to kind of four key areas. So um, the first one being. The inflexibility of governance um, and these we've talked about decision making thresholds uh, and where they can be too high um, and uh, where partner votes and Peter mentioned this before where partner votes might be required for matters that are fairly run of the mill and don't really require you to send notice of a meeting convene a meeting hold a res- um, hold a vote and you know have a resolution passed before you change your bank ma- mandate for example um so those kind of decisions um kind of, kind of looking very closely at all of your go- governance decisions in your document and under- um understanding whether some decisions better are better delegated to the management board or some other committee within the firm um, and also where your governance um, structure in, in the partnership agreement itself is outdated and maybe, maybe doesn't even reflect how you actually operate in practice um, and actually kind of really thinking back and understanding how do you make decisions within the firm and how, how, how does that effectively need to be translated into your partnership agreement. The second area that I often see um, is is quite lacking in partnership agreements is um, the inadequate mitigation against partner departures and team moves and um, the classic examples are where notice periods are fairly short um, compared to market practice or where the firm doesn't have waiting lounge provisions where Um, That restricts a certain number of partners retiring in any given period and those can be really helpful to avoid, um, to prevent or slow down team moves, moving together. Um, And then some partnership agreements even lack adequate garden leave provisions, which means partners can be on long notice periods, um, liaising with um, team members and um, clients, etc. And the firm literally can't do anything about it because they don't have... A payment in lieu of notice clause or they don't have a garden leave provision so they're kind of stuck. Um, and the other provisions are of course uh, restrictive covenants and these can often be quite historic and it's always useful to kind of review those every couple of years to ensure that they're still enforceable in light of any kind of new cases that might have come up um, and ensuring that they're um, still uh, you know still defensible if they were attacked i.e. being um, uh, you know a, a, a protection that's necessary to protect the legitimate interest of the business and other kind of provisions that firms are often also lack are good leave or bad leave provisions which can be helpful to kind of again mitigate against partner departures especially those partners who might take teams with them or clients with them um, it gives the firm the ability to kind of penalize them in some way for example with extended Periods for repaying their capital or um, withholding um, b- balances that might be owed to them. Uh, a yeah. and, and the third kind of area is kind of provisions around partner misconduct and underperformance uh, and uh, how the firm's able to deal with it. And lastly, I'd say lack of provisions around um, future events such as a sale or merger and often. Um, the firm's partnership agreements don't adequately deal with those and quite often I don't see provisions around how any capital events proceeds might be distributed distributed between partners and that can be quite problematic when uh, a firm is suddenly faced with the possibility that it might, might be sold to a business and it might actually receive
0: quite, quite substantial sums for that sale and quite hard presumably to get those sort of changes through um if there's not trust in you know between the partners because if you start trying to put in provision which deals with how we distribute capital proceeds <laughs> some people will immediately think you're, you're up to something that you might not in fact be up to um i think i want to just move on and for the last 10 minutes um just pick up on you know how you manage those difficult people who are not on board with you. Um, I feel a bit mean calling them difficult people because they may have their genuine and and, um, understandable reasons for that. But from the management's perspective, they're going to be probably a little bit of of an issue. so we've discussed kind of communication strategy and you know presenting changes to partners and uh, the method you adopted, Peter, of cascading the changes down. Um, but in terms of you know those people that were not on board, how what are the methods you can use to go about ensuring that you get those people on board and you take them with you? Uh,
1: I, I'm glad to say I didn't I didn't have a whole swathe of them. Um, so I, I, Rob might be able to give you um, some yeah. some examples from elsewhere, but. Uh, we certainly over communicated at the start and I certainly picked up the phone or went to see a number of partners who would perhaps be seen as the more influential uh, mm-hmm. and that if they had taken against it um, would potentially um, brief other partners against it and and spread so I I took the time to walk through and, and go through with them on a, on a more individual basis, or a couple of them, I just I pulled a couple aside and, and we just had an honest conversation mm-hmm. and I explained the rationale, and explained what I felt. Um, as it happened, they either because of those conversations or be, or because actually they, they saw it, um, they, they were all for it. So um, as far as I'm aware and judging by the vote in the end, I didn't have a, a whole group of, of partners dissatisfied by it. Um, but I think what that has to happen is is you put the effort in early, yeah. um, and you stop that uh, partner. And, and you know, there's a couple of questions, Kim. You know, it, it, your typical scenario would be a rainmaker who thinks the remuneration is changing. That you know that that actually people who are binders and grinders rather than the finders will will get better re- recompense, and that's not fair. I'm the whole I'm the whole reason the firm has has uh, clients, etc. Uh, I I didn't have that situation or or I got to those those people earlier. Um, And I don't think we changed some areas where people would feel quite so personally exposed. I think as a group of partners, you would feel exposed, but that's a very different feeling than than you thinking me personally, I am going to, I'm losing out here. Joe Bloggs next to me isn't. It was much done on a much more generic way. So the A partners were affected in a certain way. The B partners were affected a certain way. And the C partners were affected. They are a wider group. So we did have perhaps more divergence in there. Um, and so it was that was probably easier because we weren't seeming to pick on something that a partner would go, not fair. And And you hit that not fair button at your peril
0: yeah yeah understand. and Rob, what would you say more broadly from your sort of wider experience of other firms, how do you manage that dissenting voice
2: well it, it, it it's back to inclusion and transparency, I think, and it's uh, managing that dissenting voice within a group and unless it's a really power player and, uh, and and if it's a power player that could derail the action. Uh, then it comes back to what 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 Peter said about drawing a line, and maybe it is that you can't achieve what it is that you needed to achieve, mm-hmm. uh, and you have to look for a different avenue. But assuming um, that that it's not that. Uh, that situation I, i'm reminded of a probably my most colorful client engagement ever which was more than a decade ago did, it was an american firm i won't even breathe which part of america they were from but the discussion was about how much power the managing partner and the executive committee should have and what should go to the partnership vote and what should be agreed much like as zulon was describing and there was a there were two factions there were those that felt that everything should be decided by consensus and there was another faction unsurprisingly led by the managing partner newly elected who felt that uh, a lot could be delegated to the structure that had been created. And uh, we went to a lovely resort out in a beautiful part of America to discuss all the stuff. And it was a terrible discussion the first day. Uh, That evening, actually, a scuffle broke out in the bar. And and one of the partners who was in the uh, consensus uh, group, uh, got a black eye, and and, and uh, he left early the next morning as soon as he could drive without being accused of drunk driving, and and left the um, uh, left the retreat. And uh, th- that day, uh, uh, following on, uh, a very candid discussion could be had about what had happened the night before, what everybody felt about that, why they were partners in the first place, what it meant to be a firm, and and the decisions were made. Uh, so of course that's a very uh, uh, a drastic example but but you need to surface these concerns and in order to be able to 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 um uh, to deal with them uh, and 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 probably the most important reason for that is if you don't even if partners agree they'll walk out of the door and then try to sabotage the decision that was just been taken mm-hmm. if they don't feel that they've bought into it properly
0: yeah. I'm glad that uh, despite having, you know, a possible criminal record for brawling, they were more bothered about their (laughs) drunk driving. And what are the other risks of dissent? So, you know, what do you see either pre or post change in terms of the risk for a business? Rob, sorry, that's one for you.
2: Sorry, just repeat that. Sorry.
0: So what what are the risks to the business if you don't get people on board pre or post uh, the change going through?
2: Well, the risks, uh, besides the ones I've just mentioned, uh, are, are losing people. And, and law firms have got very thin balance sheets and they've very de- and high fixed costs. So they're very dependent on every unit of, of revenue that comes in. Uh, some are more important than others. So it comes down to really, as Peter mentioned as well, uh, knowing who you can't lose, who you don't want to lose. And... Um, Interesting, just just going back to the the question you asked me earlier about mergers. So I've been looking at mergers for several years now. I've a research project. I've looked at over 70 large law firm mergers. And there's a recurring theme I'm picking up, which is that at least one of the firms goes into a period of distress before the merger. And often you can trace that back to a number of departures, uh, unfortunate Mm -hmm. departures that um, they, they would rather not have had. Uh, which, in some cases, have rendered their business model non viable and they 've had to go and look for a merger so yeah. it, it 's really important to be able to understand who you can afford to lose what you 'll do what the contingency is if you do lose those people, and have that ha- think that through before you go into these contentious potentially potentially contentious discussions
0: mm-hmm. and in your view, what is the hardest type of change that firms Find is to, you know to get through. So is it compensation related? Is it structure related? Is it LRP agreement related? What's the toughest one if you had to pick one?
2: The, the toughest one is is one that every firm is needing to go through at the moment, and to a greater or lesser degree, is tackling, and that is the shift in business model from this pyramid shaped people leveraged model to a model in which technology plus people is delivering value it's being uh, technology is becoming more than just an overhead it's being interwoven into the client value proposition and working out how to deal with that from a pricing perspective from a performance perspective from all the other business model perspectives, how you deal with that in order to come up with a fundamentally different business model. And there's some firms that are getting it right, and there's some firms that are, are far from getting it right. But I think uh, COVID is going to prove to be a, a catalyst for a tipping point. It's not a tipping point in itself, but it's a catalyst. Yeah. And that we'll look back in years to come and say, ah, that's the inflection point. That's when things changed
0: thanks for answering that second question that was coming right at you. Um, So um, two final points before we wrap up, um, and apologies um, just on the hour. So first of all, um, Peter, you mentioned that you took about 18 months to push this change through. Um, Do you think um, that that's, you know, that people should be prepared for the long haul rather than a quick fix?
1: Uh, I think typically, yes. Um, We would like to have gone Uh, slightly quicker um, but made a decision that uh, for a variety of other factors that happened that it was right for the firm to move at that pace it allowed people to engage in it um, without feeling they got a gun to the head Uh, it allowed people to have uh, fairly lengthy discussions um, and it it allowed it to to progress at at times it felt difficult but um, uh, I think it allowed it at a pace which people got that buy-in um, so it worked for us. Uh, and I noticed there's a, there's a question coming, you know, thinking, suggesting we had a great team uh,
2: yes, working on this, that.
1: but we we, we didn't, uh, actually. Um, uh, I, we utilised uh, CM Murray, uh, Zulon and Harriet uh, were superb in, in supporting, um, but otherwise I had... Um, uh, an internal uh, resource actually our our ex-CEO who had a period of illness and was was coming back and she was she was my resource uh, along with then I'd use the partnership council and obviously I'd, I'd I'd test out papers and things on people before, but otherwise we, we didn't have any other um, assistance. So it was a, it was a fairly small team peddling quite hard uh, below the surface at, at times, which is another reason why it, it took the timing. Um, I think if we'd yeah. wanted to go quicker, we would have had to put a lot more resource onto it and take people off other things in order to drive the, um, uh, drive the document changes, et cetera. But we, we took it at that pace deliberately.
0: And that picks up on something you said right at the beginning, which you've got to manage that, n- not pulling people away from actually what they're doing, which is earning money for the business. Yeah. And um, So final wrap up, um, and apologies if we haven't got to all the questions, but thanks, Peter, for picking up a few. Um, and, and Rob, also you answered um, some. Um, can you just give me your top tip? If you had to give a firm who are listening now, thinking we need to go through change, but we don't even know where to start, what would be your top tip for them? Uh, start, first of all, with Zulon.
3: Uh, I, I think um, I think as with kind of I, th- I think it's a Mackie Evelyn phrase as well as with politics changing partnership, partnerships partnerships is also the art of the possible. So um, understanding really what 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 your what your partnership needs in um, in order to change and un- understanding your partnership and whether it's going to be possible to change is absolutely key. And doing that upfront work before you even go into those discussions is absolutely necessary. Thanks, Rob.
2: Yeah, just, just taking that upfront work an inch deeper, it's having immense clarity about what it is that you're needing to change and why, and amassing all the evidence that you need to be able to have the discussions with the power people in the firm beforehand.
0: And Peter, finally, from you, what
1: would you... Uh, well, I totally endorse that. Uh, you have to be clear as to, to why you're doing it. And and to be clear, you need to have done your own thinking and perhaps involve a few people so that you can provide the, the background and, and effectively take people on that journey. Um, so you absolutely have to have that. Uh, but then the next important thing is 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 communicate, consult and be patient. Yeah.
0: Good advice. Um, I'm sorry we have to bring this to a close because it's a really interesting discussion and I know we could have spoken a lot longer and I think Rob there's a whole other hour in the uh, model and integrating technology point that you touched on um, but thank you everyone for attending. Thank you for giving up your Friday morning and um, we really appreciate it and thanks so much to Peter, to Rob, for sharing your experiences and expertise and Peter especially for coming in and talking through your real lived experience it's really valuable for people to hear it from someone who's done it Um, and I think that that's been incredibly helpful.